0: Today's uh, scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, starting from verse 32. Uh, It's page 846. Jesus foretells his death a third time. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.' And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?' And they said to him, "'We are able,'
1: Good morning. Um, For anyone who wants to be an intern, you can talk to Pastor Steve. He's uh, interviewing people, and um, you'll have a great story to tell by the end of it, I guarantee. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask Holy Spirit that you would speak to us through it this morning. Uh, not just to accumulate more information and knowledge about your scriptures, not just to feel conviction, but Lord, that we would leave transformed people, knowing that you are working dynamically in each one of our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. This will be the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus tells his disciples what will happen to him. Now, one would think that the disciples would understand what Jesus was saying after repeating the same thing over and over and over again. But they don't. The first time Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen uh, as he was going into Jerusalem was in Mark chapter 8. So picking up in verse 31 in in chapter 8, it reads this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So obviously Peter and the disciples didn't understand what Jesus taught. And Jesus taught them again what must happen to him in Jerusalem in Mark chapter 9. So in Mark chapter 9, it starts in verse 30. It reads this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So they didn't understand in Mark chapter 8. They didn't understand Mark chapter 9. We are now in Mark chapter 10. Jesus attempts to teach them again about what must happen. And each time Jesus told them what was to happen to him, they failed miserably at understanding his death and his resurrection. Mark chapter 8, what happened there was Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus responded with this in verse 33 of chapter 8. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then in Mark chapter 9, Mark informs us that they didn't understand Jesus a second time and that they were afraid to ask him, probably afraid that Jesus was going to call them Satan also or something like that. I don't know why. But rather than talking about heavenly matters, what were they discussing on their way to Capernaum? It reads in verse 34 that they argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so if we get to Mark chapter 10, things aren't all that different. They were going up to Jerusalem, meaning that what, Jesus, uh, that what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 8 and 9 about his suffering, about his death and resurrection, that they were fast approaching. But what were they talking about? Well, James and John went to Jesus and they asked him to sit at his right hand and his left hand in his glory. So over and over again, we see that these guys are clueless about what's happening. So we pick up the story here, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, with that as a background, that this is the third time Jesus is talking to them about his death, his resurrection. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. I find it's funny that Jesus talks in the third person, but anyway, that's the side note. And they will mock him. And spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The third person thing's just bugging me out. Anyway, what reaction did the disciples and those following Jesus have? We read here that it was amazement and fear. Amazement because the disciples still don't understand why Jesus keeps bringing up this going up to Jerusalem thing, this condemnation thing, mocking, spitting flogging death like why what is all this stuff fear from those who follow Jesus because is he really talking about death is he really walking into this death sentence which wouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who was able to to connect the dots between who Jesus is and the old testament scriptures it would make sense to them psalm 22 verse 7 would make sense to them all who see me mock me they make Mouths at me, they wag their heads. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and his prophetical writings would make sense to them. Isaiah fifty, verse six. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah fifty three, that whole chapter I'm just gonna pull out verse. Verse 3, though. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This would make complete sense to those who were able to connect these dots. Now you realize that these prophecies were made hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, God incarnate, the person. And the arrival of Jesus accurately fulfills well over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Let me give you an idea. Of this. Somebody won the lottery uh, yesterday, right? Some, somebody won that $435 million lottery. I so wish it was me, but it's not. Okay? It was bought in Riverside County, and I wish I was down there, but it's not. Okay? So what odds that is. I think it was 1 in 220 million. I think that, those are the odds to win that lottery, right? Here's the odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies accurately. One in one quintillion. Have you ever even heard that number before? I had to look it up. I was like, what would it be with this many zeros? Quintillion. You know, billion, trillion, quadrillion. Quintillion. Those are the odds. The historicity of the Bible is incredibly accurate. I don't know if you realize this. And this historical accuracy is met and fulfilled in the reality of who Jesus is. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled. Imagine the odds. It is impossible. But the disciples still don't understand who Jesus is. Much like many people today who don't understand whom Jesus is because we're too busy looking for our own glory. We're more interested in places of honor rather than having a self awareness of how far we really are from God. Verse 35 And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever. We ask of you. This is like my kids sometimes. Uh, um, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but just promise that you're going to say yes. Right? And, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. That's what we want. see, All along, Jesus has been talking about suffering and dying. And this is what these guys asked. These guys were in Jesus' inner circle. You recall that these guys were at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And so maybe that's why they felt this entitlement for such a place of honor because. You know what? We are in Jesus' inner circle. We were there when Elijah and Moses showed up up there at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, we, we can probably ask him to be on his right and left side. We were there. It wasn't anything that they did that earned them that place of honor. That was complete generosity at the invitation of Jesus. That was his grace. Now, do any of us have a sense of entitlement with God? that we think that we are owed something, forgetting that it is all by his grace that we even have what we have. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they clearly think that they are, but obviously at this point in history, they can't. Jesus' cup that he drank was That of God's wrath, God's judgment against sin. Jesus was baptized with God's judgment, and James and John, they they could not do that, but they had no idea what they were saying. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And here's where I'd be like, what? And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. No, no, no. I don't want that. I just want to sit on your right or left side. I don't want the drink your cup or baptism. Like, I don't want that stuff. And so they said they were able right then, but Jesus said, not right now, but you will. You will. Now, what Jesus did on the cross, only he could do. Only he could do that. What the disciples would do that Jesus did was suffer. They would suffer. The disciples will also face death. So they will drink the cup Jesus drank, suffer. They will be baptized, die. Yay! That's not what I had in mind, right hand, left hand. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Hey, you know what? Following me is not what you think. It's not what you think it's about. It involves suffering. It involves death. And no matter what we do, it can't take the place of Jesus Christ because only he was holy, only he was righteous, and only his sacrifice is acceptable. Our suffering and our death do not earn our way into the kingdom of God. Jesus did that for us. We don't have to do anything. So, whatever we think that we've done to earn our way to the kingdom of heaven... Whatever these disciples thought that earned their spot next to Jesus or, or right or left side of Jesus, it's not Jesus who was deciding that anyway. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So these guys were upset because James and John asked Jesus before they did, right? <laughs> kind of like, you know, asking the girl out that your friend was like, hey, hey, and then you asked first, and then you're like, oh, man. Wow, I liked her and whatever. (laughs) But before this, chapter 9, they argued about who was the greatest. Way before Muhammad Ali did this stuff, right? Like, way before. And right after this argument, chapter 9, Jesus said in Mark 9, verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so they are clueless about serving at this point. They thought, They should be served. And they don't get what Jesus is all about. Here they were, in constant competition with one another, at rivalry, and consumed with their own self centeredness about what they wanted. Now keep in mind, this is Jesus' A team. This is his starting lineup. This is his death lineup. So disappointed. Anyway, this was his starting lineup to change the world. These guys. Now you know that Christianity is a God thing if you're relying on these guys to change the world, right? Like, isn't that obvious? That there's no way that Christianity is not a God thing if it's based off of the ability of these guys. Come on. Now, this should be really encouraging, I think, for all of us. This is a really encouraging thing. Because whatever God calls us to, thank God it's not dependent on you and me. That he does it. He empowers us to do his will. He uses imperfect people to complete his perfect will. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Now at this time, the person in power is Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius um, rules Rome, and so these people of honor, who, who, they demanded adoration, they demanded allegiance, they demanded loyalty, and the Roman Empire, they lorded that over the people that if you didn't, you would suffer. You would be tortured, you would be imprisoned, you would die, and they exercise this authority over everyone in the entire empire. This is a complete top-down ruler. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, earthly empires... They believe that to be the greatest, you have to be served. Don't they? To be the greatest is to have the most servants. And it's not so in the kingdom of God. It's not so in God's economy. The greatest in the kingdom of God are the servants. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you notice these extreme polar differences between Jesus and these brothers, James and John. James and John were self-centered at this moment, and we see from Jesus someone who is very selfless. James and John were looking for positions of prestige and notoriety, while Jesus was looking at his position on the cross, This cross of betrayal, of rejection, of suffering, and death. See, the passion of the Christ is is right around the corner. And at this point in history, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and where they're going to sit. You look at verse 35 again. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And so we see that James and John definitely have bad cases of narcissism, right? It's bad. But look at this. Isn't this essentially a prayer? Because that's all God is, talking to God is, right? Isn't that prayer? And so they're talking to Jesus, and, and this is what prayer is. Now, they weren't praying, Lord, your will be done, or forgive us of our sins, the man that they knew to be Messiah is about to die and all they can think about is how they were going to be put into places of honor. They were looking for power and they weren't realizing that the way up is actually to come down. Jesus came down from his heavenly throne to give his life as a ransom for many he left the security of the heavens. He left the riches of the heavens to come down here to take on flesh. Not just flesh, because he could have been born a king. He comes down born to a woman who is not married, which is pretty unacceptable at the time. Almost, she was almost stoned for that. But Joseph doesn't press those charges and he lets her live. He's born into this poor, hodunk town, Bethlehem. And that's what he chooses to be. Yet what we strive for in our earthly kingdoms are are power and security and status and wealth. And Jesus said in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. See, our faith has never been about what the earthly kingdoms strive for. If you look at church history, it shows that the church is healthiest when it is an alien in a, in a culture. That's when the church is thriving and flourishing. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, for, for that Christian's life to be countercultural is when Christianity flourishes. In kingdom economy of God, the way up is Down. Down. And perhaps it was James and John's background that, that kind of influenced this thought because they were sons of Zebedee. Zebedee owned a fishing business in Capernaum and maybe they felt entitled because, you know, we do have some means, we do have some servants that work on the boats with us and for us and we, they mend our nets and they do all these kind of things. They pull the catch in and so they're accustomed to people serving them and them not serving others. And I wonder how many of us feel like this with God today. And that we've kind of grown up in relative comfort. Many of us have experienced being served and maybe not so much serving others and maybe we've become overly comfortable being in the presence of God and in in such times of familiarity and comfort, maybe we've lost sight that the way into the kingdom of heaven is to come down. And maybe we're the ones who are really clueless. Jesus said to James and John in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? How often does this happen to us? We ask for things of God that we don't actually know what we are really asking for. And when God responds with a question, we we are responding, replying unwisely. Then Jesus replied in verse 39, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. We briefly looked at these verses a bit ago. Let's, let's look at these a little bit more in depth. Earlier we looked at this cup as being that of God's wrath, of God's judgment that Jesus was going to drink. Now this is a metaphor to what Jesus will do on the cross and in the grave before his resurrection. And we see this in Matthew 26, verse 39, when Jesus said, "'My Father, if it is possible, "'let this cup pass from me, "'nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will.'" Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath, and then he was baptized, he died. And he was flooded by the judgment of God upon sin, James and John, they didn't understand what Jesus was about to do, and they themselves couldn't do what Jesus did. They couldn't drink the cup of God's judgment upon sin. Only Jesus could drink that cup as a propitiation for sin. John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Only Jesus can redeem the sins of all who received him by faith. And as Mark chapter 10, verse 45 reads, to give life as a ransom for many. We know that James and John did drink the cup Jesus drank, this cup of suffering. They were baptized with the baptism Jesus was baptized with because they did die. We're told in the scriptures that James was killed by King Herod Antipas, Acts chapter 12, verse 2, most likely from beheading. Church tradition tells us that John was boiled in a vat of oil, but that he lived through that. And so then he was exiled to this island, this prison, the Alcatraz of the time, called Patmos. And if you go to Patmos today, it's beautiful. Like It's gorgeous. But back then, it's a place for hard labor. They had, this, they had these mines there. And this is where John wrote the book of Revelation. He was eventually freed. He went back to what we know today is modern-day Turkey, and that's where he died of old age. And he is the only disciple to not die as a martyr, that he died a natural death. But he did suffer tremendously, if you can imagine being boiled in a vat of oil. They did not suffer as Jesus did for our sins, but they did suffer for their faith in Jesus. And their death didn't save anyone from their sins, but they did die. And Jesus knew that they would suffer and die, and they they did end up finishing well. But at the time of Mark chapter 10, they're not doing too hot. Self-centered, Seeking to be served rather than to serve. Concerned with position, status, security. Climbing up more so than denying oneself, taking up his cross and following Jesus. Climbing down. And so we're so consumed with wanting to be first. With climbing corporate ladders. With wanting better, faster, stronger, higher. And we were just wanting more. More money, more status, more prestige, more honor but it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. Our earthly kingdoms are full of people who are like James and John of Mark chapter 10. It's full of them. And I'm actually talking about people who claim to follow Jesus. Consumed with merit and what they can achieve and what they can earn, for their own success. But all that success is selfishly motivated. It's, it's for one's self. And Jesus said, but it shall not be so among you. So how in the world are we to break ourselves of operating like this? Verses 44 and 45. Whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So countercultural. This is so revolutionary. That last phrase, verse 45, is the why Jesus served. To give his life as a ransom for many. That's why. Now what is ransom? Let's look at the Old Testament to help us define ransom. Let's start in Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 through 30. Bear with me as I I read this because maybe it doesn't become obvious until later. When an ox gores a man, you're like, what? Get what I mean? Okay. When an ox gores a man, because we know that that happens every day here. Or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. And its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past... And its owner has been warned, but not has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. You, you see that that this is a ransom. Now, one more Bible passage: it's Leviticus 25. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you can read it for yourself. In Leviticus 25, it talks about slaves and servants and how they can be redeemed. How property can be redeemed. It's a ransom. Now back to chapter 10, verse 45 of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is a very well-known concept for people in Jesus' day. and, And the people in Jesus' day knew... That a ransom is extremely costly and your life depended on it. Because if you didn't pay it, you died. So how are people going to be redeemed from these guilty acts of death? How is life redeemed? How are those who are in bondage set free? A ransom. Verse 45. A ransom paid by Jesus, only by Him. A costly price, a a critical intervention by Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried out our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed he redeemed us he paid our ransom 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him who knew to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of god Paul also wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now here's the beauty of the communion sacrament that we do every week here. That, that Jesus Christ in his death has paid in full that the wrath and judgment of God for all who have faith in him to have done so. For those who trust in who he is as a redeemer to pay the ransom. See, Jesus' death was the ransom, the payment in full. And, and Jesus' resurrection was the receipt. Right? The, the, the acceptance of that full payment. And you and I, we will face trials and we will face temptations. We will drink a cup. But the payment was already paid in full. We're not earning anything. We're not achieving anything into the kingdom of God. We will be accused of things from the enemy to make us feel less than by the powers of darkness. But the ransom settled every single account against us. And communion, it reminds us of this, of this security that we have in Jesus. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. So you and I, we don't have to worry about, hey, um, what do we have to do to get there? Because then we fall back into the rich young ruler who runs up to Jesus, kneels down and asks, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? failing to realize you don't do anything. Jesus did it all. It is by his grace. He has given us his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace and your gift of forgiveness that you did pay our ransom to save our lives from eternal separation from you. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who does not realize that they have been given this gift and all they need to do is receive it, accept it. And there's nothing that we can do to earn our way into your presence because you fully already accept us and love us and you can't do that any more than you already do. But Lord, I ask that your blessings would be on people who make effort. Not believing that it earns entry into your kingdom, but that those efforts are a fruit, a byproduct of a changed life, of knowing who you are and that grace that you've given to us. Lord, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to realize that the way to you is actually to be servant of all to go down in Jesus name amen